0: Have its own little safu, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's live it's live stream all over the world <laughs> I was preparing to talk tonight, I came across this, um, it's actually a Chinese poem, uh, translated by Thomas Merton, and um, felt like it really fit what I was going to talk about tonight. It says, "Tree, the draftsman, could draw more perfect circles freehand than with a compass. His fingers wrought forth spontaneous forms from nowhere. His mind was meanwhile free and without concern with what he was doing. No application was needed. His mind was perfectly simple and knew no obstacle. Sounds good, huh? So when the shoe-foot fits, the foot is forgotten. When the belt fits, the belly is forgotten. When the heart is right, for and against are forgotten. No drives, no compulsions, no needs, no attractions. Then your affairs are under control. You are free. Easy is right. Begin right and you are easy. Continue easy and you are right. The right way To go easy is to forget the right way and forget that the going is easy. So one of those wonderful koan-esque poems, just let it bubble around in there, see what happens. So as I mentioned last night, only two weeks ago I was on retreat at Spirit Rock and I was actually blessed this time, it's not always been true, with a very happy retreat. I was delighted to be with the monastic community again, which I was, I recommend it for those of you who have not sat with them. And I was just happy to be able to practice and to have the time. And then of course, I also had the blessing of a kind of continuation of that retreat by going down into the desert and to spend time down at Joshua Tree with those astounding trees and the wind and the space, um, and that really was a continuation of that same uh, time. The trees, the flowers, the plants grow in silence. The stars, the sun, the move, moon move in silence. Silence gives us a new perspective. That's from Mother Teresa. So you're all here in this time of silence, and presumably many of you, I knew I was, are looking for a new perspective. So, you know, it's likely that you've had some thoughts about, well, how am I going to do this at this retreat, and what's going to make it happy, and, you know, how is it going to work? You know, some of you don't really know how a retreat works. And how can I find the transformation that I'm looking for? So over and over again in his teachings, the Buddha says, I come to teach the nature of suffering and the ending of suffering. And he came, he really wanted to help all beings to be happy and to be contented with their lives. So this probably sounds pretty good at the end of a first day of retreat, um, because often the first day of retreat um, is an entire day of being with a difficult body that isn't used to this kind of sitting and being still, and sometimes the even more difficult heart and mind. And if any of you had that sort of unusual first day that's a honeymoon, Um, guess what? (laughs) Tomorrow you might get the difficult day. So it's not usual that you get um, a retreat without any difficulties. So you've come here. You've come to this pretty interesting place, Land of Medicine Buddha, which is really remarkably apart from all the hustle and the bustle of the urban Bay Area. It really only takes what 10 minutes to get down there, the traffic lights, and lots and lots of people and noise. And you're apart from your usual activities, the things that you do with your everyday. And we hope you're apart from your cell phones, although I wasn't so sure during that last sitting, and music, and computers, and the gym routine, and your household routine. You know, all of the things that all of us have that, for most of us, add up to a pretty stressed life. So again, in um, pondering things this afternoon, I found an old quote that I'd forgotten that I had from Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu. He says, If we compare ourselves with chickens, we'll see they don't have headaches, insomnia, or ulcers. They're free of nervous tension and mental disorders. Chickens don't go crazy like we do every day. (laughs) The world's people take drugs by the ton, while the chickens don't take even a speck. They sleep tight, minds at ease 100%. Don't you feel a little embarrassed by the chickens? (laughs) Human birth gives us the right to be neurotic. Should we count this as a blessing or a curse? Please find some Dhamma before it's too late to live happily, no longer shamed by the chickens. (laughs) Hmm. So maybe that's our goal for this retreat. We're all going to be chickens by the end of the retreat, uh, being happy and without neuroses and insomnia. So... This is really, it's like a time of pilgrimage, you know, a time to come here to journey a little bit inwardly to see if you can find that inner place that's about liberation and freedom. But, you know, we're kind of relentlessly going, right? So have you stopped today, really? You know, even for a moment? Or did you discover again, which most of us do on the first day of retreat? I'm just how hard it is to stop, and how much the mind is still churning along, ticking along, planning and thinking and worrying and all the things. And the body is also still moving along. Doesn't want to sit still for hours at a time in here. So, as I was thinking, you know, okay, what to talk about tonight? Should I talk about this or talk about that? Um, what came back to me fairly strongly, so I thought I would listen, um, and something that actually came back during my own time of retreat as a teaching. Uh, so I thought I would use that. And it's from that same Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a great Thai meditation master, and he was a teacher, one, of, one teacher, of um, many of the older Vipassana teachers in this country. And he says, there is nothing to do There is nowhere to go, and there is no one to be. And I've always, I love this teaching, and I love it because it's so easy to remember you've got it at this point, right now. You know, most of you could probably say it back to me with just having said it just that once. Uh, There's nothing to do, there's nowhere to go, and there's no one to be. So you can, like, put it in your pocket and carry it around with you during the retreat, you know. check in with it every now and then. Because we need that. We need those kinds of teachings and we need to be able to um, check in with something when we come to a retreat and we try to stop. Because when we stop, what happens? What happens? Everything we haven't been paying attention to comes up. You know, it turns out you you thought you were coming, Retreat, maybe a little bit of light and bliss, and possibly some music wafting around. And it turns out that it's the garbage dump and it's your stuff. And so, if there's contraction or fear or anxiety or anger or hurt or places where you're in denial, there they are. And I was realizing as I wrote this this afternoon, I was thinking of again that retreat a couple of weeks ago. I was out walking couple days into the retreat, I was beginning to be pretty settled, and um, was walking back in the forest, um, and there was some beautiful, beautiful trees in the area, and I was noticing that I was seeing them, and then all of a sudden, this whole thing came up for me, um, and I realized that I had been completely in denial about the fact that I might if my left eye goes, I might lose my sight. And I hadn't, I've had not i been annoyed at my eye doctor for spending so much time on the good eye, checking it out. Why is he doing that? That eye is fine. Isn't that interesting? And he's checking it out because he knows it's my only good eye. And he wants to make sure it stays my only good eye. I had been in total denial. And maybe still am, I don't know. Um, But it was quite a powerful experience of this whole wave of grief and sadness and loss and what it would be to lose my sight, perhaps almost completely. So when we start sitting, we see that there's a lot of suffering that goes on in this body-mind-heart complex. And this place where we struggle and where we suffer is really right at the core of the Buddha's teaching. So he comes to teach us the nature of that suffering. And then he comes to teach the way to live without suffering so very much. And he taught this right from the very beginning of his teaching. And if you read a lot of the suttas and study, you see that over and over and over and over again, that's what he's teaching. That was his um, main intention in his teaching life. So the first teaching is the Dhammachaka Sutta, and it's the teaching about the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, and it's the teaching about what we call the four noble truths which is his teaching about how to understand all the suffering that we get into and then how to be happy so he says there is stress and unsatisfactoriness and a way in which our lives are continually out of round you know how wheels are sometimes they have a flat side and then every You know, the cart or whatever you're pushing around keeps going kafank, because it's out of round. And that, uh, in this teaching, this is the teaching about dukkha, he says that there's nothing that is perfectly good. It might be momentarily fabulous, but it doesn't last ever. You know, so it's not good for very long. And that's the way it is, in this world of time and space. And if this is distressing to you, which it is for most of us, you're not crazy. It just means you're seeing how it is. This is the nature of our human experience. There's an old story about people going on retreat. And some man who was going off to his first Vipassana retreat and he went to um, a retreat that is in the lineage of Goenka and um, because the way Goenka set up his retreat scene um, if he wasn't there which of course he often wasn't because he lived in India and this retreat was in the United States they would show videotapes of him giving instructions and giving the talks and that kind of thing so you know how it is with videotapes. The, the sound isn't always fabulous. So the man went to the retreat, kind of like you did last night, and he sat down and began to listen. He was really eager, because his life was a mess. And he listened, and he then heard Goenka say after a while, notice your desperation. And he went, wow! Notice my desperation? This is this guy knows. So he felt into his desperation because he was really pretty desperate. And you know, a couple times again, Going ji said, "You know, notice your desperation." And after a while, the evening session ended, and our friend went off to bed feeling very happy he'd found just the right place where he could practice because they knew about desperation. And he went to sleep and he got up in the morning and he went back and they played a slightly different tape in the morning with the meditation instructions and he realized that Goinkichi was saying, notice your respiration. <laughs> <laughs> so, you no, know, not quite the same thing. But please. If you're noticing your desperation, that's a good thing to notice too. So, um, not to worry if that's what you're noticing, as well as your respiration. So, in the second of these truths, he says, we get caught. We don't like how things are. We want more of this and less of that. We will, Or we want it to stay the same and it doesn't or we want it some way different from the way it is. We want to possess things, often our partners, which is not a very good idea, or we want to control our lives, or we want to know what's going on or how it's going to be. We want whatever is painful or uncomfortable to go away, and we want the yummy things to stick around or to increase. And the Buddha says, this is what creates dukkha. And notice, it's not the pain itself. It's the wanting it to be other than the way it is. As they say in 12-step programs, pain is required and suffering is optional. So that's a very interesting, it's another one of those little pithy teachings that's worth holding on to. But in the third of the truth, the very good news is it's possible to end this. And it's possible to find in any given moment a place of freedom and liberation from the stress from the dukkha and then he says in the fourth there's a path and that's the eightfold path which I'm not going to talk about tonight but probably we'll get to by the end of the retreat of wise understanding and wise intention and wise speech, action and livelihood and wise effort mindfulness and concentration so while we're here on the retreat, this is a great chance to work with this teaching and with our own experience to figure it out, to really notice while you're on the retreat. How do we suffer? How are you suffering? Be curious. Be interested in your suffering. Now, what do we do to that seems to make it less? Because sometimes we figure out, oh, you know, look, if I go... I pay attention to it, seems to ease a little bit. Sometimes it even goes away for a while. So get interested. Sometimes it gets worse. Get interested in that too. And Buddha does this set of instructions. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be. Are very, very useful in this process of attending to our suffering. Because we so often act out our attachment, our desire for control and possession by doing something or by going somewhere or by trying to be somebody, preferably somebody in charge because that will, we think, will help. So I want to look at each of these a little bit more carefully. So the first is there's nothing to do. So I'll remind you of that poem that I quoted last night from John O'Donohue. But I would love to live as the river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. So there's, you know, there's a kind of a hint there that um, this river isn't unfolding itself. It's not doing itself. It's being surprised by itself. So I don't know about you, but you know, it's so easy for me to try to do something, to fix myself or somebody else or the situation, to adjust things. And the notion that perhaps we can just do nothing is remarkable. It's kind of breathtaking, actually. Just do nothing. And we can actually allow things to unfold in our lives. We do and we do. We go faster and faster and faster and our technology for going fast, apologies to our friend here, is driving us all crazy. We are all going crazy. We are not happy like Buddha Dasa's chickens, are we? You know, the chickens don't know anything about technology. They're much happier. And it was really interesting, you know, as I pondered this today, I realized when I was young, so I grew up in the 40s and the 50s, you know, back in the dark ages, I know, but, you know, nonetheless. And in those days, especially in the 50s, we began to be madly in love with our technology. I mean, what was happening was astounding. And it just became more so in the 60s. And actually, a lot of people worried that we might be in danger of coming to a time when we wouldn't have to work. Because every, all this technology would do everything for us. What would we do if we didn't have to work? And we worried about it. Do you know anybody for whom technology means they don't have to work? I don't think so. Instead, we've come to a time where we are always working. We are always connected. I was with a friend yesterday who was presumably taking a week off to spend time with a visitor. She had her cell phone in her pocket. I think while I was with her, she probably got a dozen texts from people that she works with that she needed to tend to. Is this Is a holiday? I don't think so, you know. And we're all like that. We don't go anywhere without carrying our phones and without being available. My husband, my dear (coughs) husband Russell, has been in the technology world for a long, long time, you know, in the earliest, earliest days of computers. And um, he worked for a long time for Xerox, writing software for computers and printers. And Jack Cornfield once asked him, he was kind of curious, Jack loves technology, he said, well, you know, what, you know how, how fast can you make a printer go? Because at that time, I think they were working on a printer that was cranking out more than 100 pages a minute of beautiful National Geographic color, you know, pretty, pretty fast for a printer. And so how fast could it go? You know, could you do 200 pages or 300 pages? Would the technology ever go there? And Russell thought about it for a minute, you know, (coughs) because you know, what was the upper limit? And he said, the upper limit is when the paper catches fire. (laughs) (laughs) In our culture, we have caught fire, haven't we? You know, we are burning up with all of this stuff. And many of us yearn for that fire to be put out. And then as I was writing today, I thought, That's how Nibbana is talked about sometimes, as a quenching. Isn't that interesting? That this place of ultimate liberation is about quenching the fire. So what's really wonderful is that you are all smart enough to come here for a few days. And I bow to every one of you for being here. It's great that you know to do this. It's great that I knew to do it a couple of weeks ago. We all need to do it. So the word Vipassana means to see clearly. And sometimes the instruction is to penetrate your experience with your awareness, to go right into it. Now the Buddha, the Buddha himself spent his early years of practice and he was kind of in a relentless search for altered states of consciousness, because that's what a lot of the practitioners were doing in that time. The great yogis of his day were very, very good at very interesting, deep, deep states of meditative consciousness. But although he valued the clarity of mind that those states can bring, he also found that they weren't the liberation that he was looking for. That wasn't exactly it. And then he had this very interesting experience of remembering a moment from his childhood where he was watching his father do the spring plowing. Apparently even the kings in those days did the spring plowing, which was kind of cool. And he was just sitting there and watching and being fully present, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, being right there with his experience. And he realized... There was something in that memory that he needed to give his attention to. Wendell Berry says, I go among the trees and sit still. This is like the Buddha, right? I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks... Take, lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what I'm afraid of comes, I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It mm. sings, and I hear its song. Mm. So, despite what your mother or Sister Ignatius Or your grandfather said, not doing is not being lazy. It doesn't mean that you will never work again. It doesn't mean that you won't do your best to create compassionate change in this world. It just means that you are taking the time to learn how to be fully present in every moment, every moment, not just here on the cushion, every moment, and to practice that presence so you can do it in every situation. What we're doing here is only the beginning. We're not training you to be in Vipassana retreats for the rest of your life. God forbid, that's not a good idea. But we are hoping to train you to be present. So we're learning to wait, and to rest in the silence, and to see clearly and to begin to understand where we're caught, and to free ourselves from our attachment. When we can do this, in those moments that we can do this, then skillful response will arise on its own. When we see this way, when we're fully present, we often know what wise and compassionate action is needed. And then we can do, and then we act. Our world is in serious pain. It's in serious trouble. Climate change, the terrible political situation all over the world, it's not just the craziness that's here. The environment, the other beings, the species that are dying out by the dozens every day. It needs healing and it needs healers who are present with open (coughs) hearts and minds. And you are training to be those healers. That's why you're here. So then, there is nowhere to go. So some years ago, I was at a retreat. Somebody put up a sign on the board, on the noteboard, board, like we have over here. It said, do not improve. <laughs> maybe Marcy can make us a sign do not improve we are forever trying to improve aren't we we're trying to go somewhere we're trying to improve our bodies Then Buddha says there is nowhere to go do not improve so we exercise and we do sudoku to sharpen our aging minds or maybe crossword puzzles and we work at opening our hearts and We're always trying to be something better, you know, a better version of what we are now. We're always moving, we're always headed somewhere. When you come to a retreat with an agenda, we talked about this a little bit last night, this is a guarantee that you will suffer at the retreat. Isn't that interesting? Any agenda... Even if your agenda is, it's time to let go of this old grief, it's time to open my heart, it's time to get a little bit more awake, or maybe a lot awake, if you have to do that, you will suffer. Pretty interesting. So, you know, I've always loved sitting with Ajahn Sumedho, who simply says, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. And if you tell him, your knee hurts, he will say, pain is like this. And if you tell him you're angry, he will say, well, then anger is like this. And if he tells, you tell him you're sad, he will say, well, then look at how sadness is like this. So it's, a, it's another one of these little pithy ones that you can carry around. If you just remember, no matter what's happening, if you are totally insane on the cushion, you can go, well, huh, Insanity is like this. That's where you start with being what it is. Marcy today, in our gentle Qigong class, I didn't go to the challenging one, she said, no striving. Same teaching, no striving. What we are seeking is not over there or out there. It's right here in this very present moment. So, liberation, I think, is a geography. It's a geography. It's always available no matter what's happening. You look around, sniff around inside of your own being and find out where is the place in this moment where there is no suffering. And pretty much all the time, it's going to be where you don't have to get out of that moment. It just is the way it is. It's hard, it's painful, you don't like it. All of that's true, and when you can be with that not liking in that moment, that's where there's no suffering. You know, there's so many stories, how many fairy tales and myths and fables have we all heard, where the hero or the heroine, goes out in search of the fabulous treasure, right? And they have all kinds of adventures while they're doing it. So, you know, maybe they have a dream. Maybe the hero or the heroine lives in Santa Cruz, and they have a dream. There is a treasure, and it's in a very remote city, someplace probably on the other side of the world, and it's at a very specific address, a street in this city on the other side of the world. And so the seeker, whoever they are, goes hunting for the treasure and usually they you know they never go in a straight line. They don't get on a jet plane and just get there. They go here and they go there and they encounter dragons and difficulties and all kinds of things. And they finally get there and they get to that street and they knock on the door, you know and someone comes to the door and they say, I'm so and so and I had this dream that there is a treasure in this house. And the person says, well, that's funny. <coughs> I had a dream that in the city of Santa Cruz, at the home of the same same name person, there's a treasure under the bed. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, it's like that. Sometimes it's sewed into the hem of the garment that they're wearing. Sometimes there's all different kinds of version. But but the pre- the treasure is where... They began, it's in the beginning, it's in that moment. It's interesting, the journey seems to be part of the deal. You know, We kind of have to go out and go through all that suffering. But in the end, we begin to find out it's in this moment. We often think, you know, that it's out there ahead of us, but uh, it's not. But our Tibetan friends say, "Look within your own mind." Or there's a Zen teaching that says, where the student says to the teacher, "Teach me," and the teacher says, "Have you eaten your soup?" And the student says, "Yeah," and then the teacher says, "Wash your bowl." <laughs> <laughs> That's the It's in the washing of the ball. Freedom is realized. It's made real. That's what realized means. It's not arrived at. It's not somewhere else. So you can practice this. You can actually practice being free while you are here. So you can practice being content with what is. So maybe, you know... Your room isn't quite the way you wanted it, or the bed is a little harder, or softer, or saggier than your own bed at home, or you eat different food, or maybe the person sitting next to you is breathing funny, or you know, restless a lot, and that's what is. So, can you find the place of freedom? with those things being the way they are not hoping for a better moment you know not hoping for the next set or the next walk or maybe tomorrow will be better where is the freedom in this moment so you have to give up frequently and often and a great mantra for this practice and Jason used it a lot in the instructions this morning is here here Just remembering to say to yourself, here. The teachings of the Buddha are instructions for the investigation of your own heart and mind. So what we're asked to do is to explore the geography of the moment. The geography of suffering and liberation. Where do I suffer? What is that like? Get really interested in it. You know. Where do I suffer lust? Even maybe for just a moment. So Haakuin says, if I can find my poem, he says, not knowing how near the truth is, we seek it far away. What a pity. We are like those who in the midst of water cry out in thirst so imploringly, We are like the child of a rich man who wanders away among the poor. At this moment, what more need we seek? As the truth eternally reveals itself, this very place, this very place is the lotus land of purity. This very body, this body, the one you're sitting in right now, is the body of the Buddha. So then last but hardly least there is no one to be. We are so good at being someone. You all know who you are. You all know your names and you know what you do in the world. You know you're a student or you're a mom or you're a teacher or a nurse or whatever. But These are just, they're like, they're temporary names. They're given to us for this short spell of time where we're hanging around on this planet. And so while you're here, you can let go of those names a little bit. Now, no one knows. Isn't that fabulous? You know, most of the people in this room have no idea what you do or who you are or whether you're friendly or cranky or curmudgeonly or sweets, or any of those things. You don't have to be that stuff. You don't have to be anything. You can let go of who you are. All you are is you are students. You are yogis. That's your name for the retreat. I was listening to a David White lecture yesterday. He was talking about how people, when people are on pilgrimage on the Camino in uh, Europe, um, they're all pilgrims. So people will call out, Pellegrino! You're going the wrong way. Go over there on that road. Or Pellegrino, it's starting to rain. Come in and take some shelter. Or Pellegrino. And so everybody's Pellegrino because they're on the pilgrimage. So you are Pellegrino, in a way, here at this retreat. Yogi, Yogi, go over this way a little bit. Yogi, slow down. You know, Yogi, watch your breath. We don't have to use your names. You don't need your names this week. So, it's really a time when you don't have to be anyone. My favorite place to practice this is in airports. Because airports, nobody knows who's, who I am at, at an airport, and they don't, you know, they don't expect me to be any particular way. The other place where I'm often in disguise is when I go to Burning Man with my husband. And nobody expects me to be a meditation teacher uh, at Burning Man. And there's sometimes, once in a while, someone sees me there who knows me, they're a little surprised. Um, (laughs) I had the very interesting experience some weeks ago I work um, at the National Park and uh, Volcano which is where I live on the Big Island and um, so we got lots and lots and lots of visitors and I wear this little brown Boy Scout type uniform and I can tell you everything you need to know about the volcano and where to go hiking and that kind of thing And so I was behind the desk at the visitor center, and I had just finished telling somebody what to do with their time, and I was sort of finishing up, um, putting something away, and I looked up, and the woman who was right in front of me, her mouth dropped open, and her eyes got big, and she said, I know you. (laughs) and it turned out to be somebody who had sat with me for a number of retreats well, a few years back and she was totally shocked because <laughs> meditation teachers don't wear little brown boy uniforms <laughs> and work in visitor centers it's just not done you know we've worked so hard to be whoever it is we are you know i've worked hard to learn a lot about buddha dharma you've worked hard to be a teacher or a doctor or, you know, teaching yoga. We, are, we all arrive at retreat laden down with this burden of who we are. Do you ever get tired of your personality and who you are? You know, we often do. We get, ex- I get exasperated with mine. You know, you see your best neurosis coming around one more time. You know, you're about to do it again. Your anxious thing or your cranky thing or whatever. I mean, yikes! It's it's a bit much. But being no one—that sounds kind of scary. You know what what if you what if you're sitting on the retreat and you have a no self experience uh-huh. and everybody kind of goes oh. you know I won't know who I am when it's time to leave you know I won't pick out the right pair of shoes or maybe I'll walk into the wrong dorm room or whatever but you know It doesn't seem to happen. It doesn't seem to happen. As we get a little older, it happens a little more often. But, you know, mostly it's not happened. I have to tell you, this pilgrimage on the planet Earth is pretty short. You know, we're not here for very long. I'll be 75 in October. And the who begins to feel like it's a little extra. I don't think it's enlightenment. I think it's just old age but it's very clear that it's not going to last. Mm. And this is part of this core teaching of the Buddha. He says there isn't anything solid, and there's nothing permanent that is self. And trying to figure out what is permanently self is a waste of time. And he says any clinging, any attachment whatsoever to things we identify with will cause suffering. You know, the monks chant every day. It's, it's a ferocious chant, I think. They say, body is not self. Feelings are not self. Perception is not self. Mental formations are not self. Consciousness is not self. <sighs> Try that every day for a while. It's very, very strong. Any clinging, any identification will cause suffering. Selfing causes problems. If it's about I, or me, or mine, you're in trouble. Now, not to worry. The conventional sense of self is useful in the world of time and space. Even the Buddha remembered who he was. He recognized his mother and his son, and he was nice to them, and he, but he wasn't <coughs> clinging to any particular identity. So here, you can watch how you do this. You know, it's very interesting, even at retreat. So you've you know, you've left all that identity down there on Prescott Road, but now you're trying to be the best yogi, right? To walk the slowest, to be the most silent, to sit the straightest, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> to ask the best questions in the hall. You know, or to have the classiest retreat shawl, whatever it is. So we become kind of obsessed with being a good student. That's the self for the retreat. Or we worry our, when the body becomes an issue, you know, my knees, my back, you know, maybe, I'm, maybe my body is now ruined for forever because I did Qigong with Marcy, and I sat first <laughs> Or we get caught here at retreat, because we're identified with a particular form of practice. We go, Oh, this retreat. I don't think I like this retreat. You know, that retreat I sat a month ago. That was a better retreat. You know. They do it better wherever it was that you said. Our Zen friends do it better. Who knows? Or I need shorter sitting periods, or I need longer sitting periods. Or if only this other teacher were here, the one that I really liked, not the people who are here today, then I would be okay. Or maybe I should have gone to a yoga retreat or a surfing retreat, because that would be better. So watching those places is helpful. It's not awful that it happens. It's just a conditioned arising in your mind. But begin to watch them, because that's where you can see where you are creating self, you know. And if there's any place where you're resisting the instructions, you know, Jason again this morning said, follow the instructions. (sighs) You know, but there are times when you are like, no, I don't want to follow those instructions. I don't need those instructions. The first year or two of my practice, I thought I didn't need to move slowly like those people. That was for them. That wasn't for me. I don't know where I got that idea. It's embarrassing. It was a long time ago, so I can talk about it now. And then, at some point, I realized you know maybe I should follow the instructions, so I did, and a whole new world of practice opened up so any place where we get attached like that really important maintaining these personalities is a time consuming task you know we 're like walking movie sets, most of us we 're always shifting and changing the kind of present the best view to whichever audience were there. But the personality isn't what gets enlightened. You know, It's not. No matter how spiffed up you make it, that isn't what's going to do it. It's not what awakens. It's just on loan for this particular lifetime. You know, By the next leg, even in this lifetime, it might be a good bit different. One of the things that's happening for me right now is, you know, it's like I'm having all these memories of all these different ways that I was at different parts in my life. I've been a lot of personalities. You can do a lot of personalities in 75 years. Some of it's the same, but there's definitely some differences. You know? And I know, it's beginning to fray around the edges a little bit already. And then it will dissolve. You know. It will. So you can set this aside for these few days. You don't have to be any particular role. Well, I had a yoga teacher. who used to say, "Let go of anything extra," as we would be in a particular asana. And at one point, I thought, "Oh, she means me. <laughs> she yeah. means to let go of you know that place where I'm holding on, where I'm identified." Yeah. One last thing. I totally recommend that you include in this process of not doing and not going and not being someone the practice of gratitude, because it's a practice that eases this whole process very, very much. That place where we find something in any moment for which we (coughs) can be grateful. Each being that crosses your path is your teacher. Each event that comes your way is your teacher, whether it's your aching knee, or your wandering mind, or the food you don't like—it's your teacher. I had a wonderful day at the retreat. I've been talking about it with the teachers. I had a woman on this side. I call her Restless Woman. She could not sit still. She moved and moved and adjusted her posture into this and to that. Moved around just constantly. You know, first, I went, oh, you know, maybe I'll have to move. And then one day, as she was being very restless over here. I had somebody who was lying down for a particular sitting who was having terrible digestive problems and had a stomach that was growling like you wouldn't believe. I hate to think what was going on. And so, you know, there was that place where aversion started to arise and then I thought, no, they are my teachers for the sutri. What happens if I just breathe in their suffering and breathe out compassion and relax and just it's just sound It's just sound. Stomach growling isn't really any different from the ravens, you know. It's not. It's just sound. And then after a while it kind of began to ease. It was was very, very interesting. I kind of hoped I'd get to talk to them before the end of the retreat, but somehow they got out of there and I never did. So we can work with that practice of gratitude. Thank you for being restless. Thank you for having a growling stomach, even though it's probably kind of hard and uncomfortable. You know, Thank you for this food I don't like because it's going to teach me. Duke Ellington said, I merely took the energy it takes to pout and wrote some blues. <laughs> <laughs> so for a few days, you can remind yourself, I don't have to be anyone. I don't have to go anywhere, not much of anywhere. And I have very little to, to do. So I invite you you know, to enter this blessed space, this very, very blessed space of letting go of doing and going, and letting go of personality, and just to notice what happens as you set them aside for a moment. And so maybe here and there, there will be moments when there's no greed and no hatred and no delusion. And that's the definition, it's one of the definitions Of a moment of freedom. I think that's enough. (laughs) So let's just stay exactly where you are and let's just breathe together for a moment. sometimes from sorrow, for no reason you sing. For no reason you accept the way of being lost, cutting loose from all else and electing a world where you go where you want to. Arbitrary a sound comes, a reminder that a steady center is holding all else. If you listen, that sound will tell you where it is, And you can slide your way past trouble. Certain twisted monsters always bar the path, but that's when you get going best, glad to be lost, learning how real it is here on Earth again and again. So, thank you very much for listening. I went over my allotted time a bit, but we started late, so I guess that's okay. And um, you have about 20 minutes for walking. Perhaps the person ringing the bell at 9 could ring it at 9 rather than five minutes before to come in for the last sitting. So, thank you.